whatever that was. So last time we, we reviewed everything that we had done about uh, Freudian psychology, psychodynamic psychology, and so on, and all of these things. And this, this session, we're going to move on to a new kind of uh, 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 school of thought about psychology, new ideas in psychology that are almost the opposite of uh, what Freud and what the psychodynamic psychologists spoke about, which is that they mostly, up till now, we've mostly been talking about the deeper inner life of the person and how the deeper unconscious uh, realm influences a person's experiences, a person's reaction, a person's dreams, a person's uh, 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 mis, uh, you know, let's say forgetting things or misstatements or uh, all these different aspects of our lives that are uh, we sometimes think are just random, or we might think are uh, uh, are uh, explained in other logical ways, practical ways. So Freud and the psychodynamic psychologist and psychoanalysis basically says that no, this is all being determined by the unconscious recesses of your uh, personality, and that's essentially what uh, what we spoke about up till now. We talked about that in all kinds of different ways, especially regarding dreams and so on. Now, in, what we're going to talk about now is almost the opposite of that, which is a much more common school of psychology in America now. In Israel, you'll still find quite a lot of uh, Freudian or psychodynamic or psychoanalytic psychologists that do therapy that really focuses on the inner underlying conflicts that a person has uh, in the depths of their personality uh, and also will um, give tests that um, tap into that called projective tests, which are pretty cool tests, actually. But um, they, they still use that a lot here in Israel. In America, the trend of thought starting in the 50s or so moved away from uh, psychodynamic and psychoanalytic psychology and moved into what's called, uh, uh, ba- basically what's called behaviorism, okay? Now what's really popular is something called cognitive behavioral uh, psychology, which means that it, cognitive means the brain, right, the mind. So cognitive behavioral psychology means that um, it, it looks at the mo- thoughts and behavior. Behaviorism really uh, focused only on behaviors and said, look, we can't really know, we, if we want to be scientific and all that, we can't really know what's going on inside your mind in the deep recesses of your mind. And how do we really know? And we're trying to interpret that and we're trying to delve into that and uncover it and all that. But a lot of that is very speculative. It's not something solid and measurable that we can show in a laboratory that this kind of a therapy where we analyze your inner conflicts and your experiences and how you process them, that that's really what's responsible for the way you are and who you are and and, and, and what you're experiencing uh, and, and whatever, let's say, dreams you're having or whatever symptoms you're experiencing. If you're talking about somebody who is um, psycho, who has some kind of uh, mental health issues, we can't really say that for sure. What we can look at is your behavior and what thoughts, cognitive behavioral means that what thoughts you report to us, meaning we're not going to try to analyze what's really going on in your mind. We don't know that, right? We're just going to talk about what we can see or what you experience. You tell me, oh, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about that, or I do this, or I do that. I'm afraid of mice. Uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I, I have a phobia about uh, certain things, or I, ha- I have certain anxieties, or I feel depressed, or whatever. You can describe your feelings, you can describe your thoughts, you can describe your behaviors. Beyond that, it's a mystery to us. That's what the psychologists of uh, the behavioral school, or cognitive behavioral, they say, we're not going to go into the unconscious. That's 
too speculative, too non-scientific for us. We can't really prove it. We can't prove anything about that. You can give all kinds of different explanations and interpretations and all of that of what's really going on behind the scenes in your mind, but we can't see that, in a, so to speak, in a laboratory and so therefore we're not even going to deal with that. And that's the philosophy of the cognitive behavioral or really the behavioral psychologists that became uh, the dominant school in American psychology, sort of as psychoanalytic uh, um, school of thought still is there. There still are colleges and universities and training programs that teach Freudian psychology or what more likely post-Freudian um, which was uh, psycho, what's called psychodynamic or psychoanalytic, psychodynamic. These are the later in people that followed kind of that same uh, uh, belief in the unconscious and interpreting the unconscious, interpreting dreams and so on. Behaviorism is now the much more common thing. If you go to a psychologist in America, most of the time, they're going to say, I do CBT, I do cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what they usually are going to tell you. Okay, And they're going to say, we believe in the cognitive behavioral model, which is we take what you say at face value. You say that you are anxious about this. Okay. You say that you have a phobia about that. Okay. You say that you're thinking this. Okay. We're not going to try to say, no, really, it's because your mother did this and your father did that. We're we're not going to do that. We're just going to say, it is what you're telling us, right? That's cognitive behavior. And we're going to work on that. How can we change your thoughts? We're going to teach you to think differently about the situation. We're going to teach you to act differently. Okay, we're going to train you. It's much more on the, you could say, on the surface. So people like it because it's more practical. Cognitive behavioral therapy can have a beginning, middle, and an end. It's much more concrete. It's much more measurable. But it doesn't go into depth of the personality. Does, it believe, does a cognitive behavioral psychologist believe that there is depth to the personality? Maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe yes. But it doesn't matter is the point because we're not going to treat that. We're not going to focus on that. Now, what is the basis of this mainly, this, this school of thought? So it all started re- really with when we're looking at behavior, okay? And, and then we're going to see if it overlaps at all with the Freudian idea. And then we're going to get into a Torah ideas, okay? Now, let's take the father of this kind of um, thinking, which is somebody that you might have heard of before. His name is Pavlov. Have you heard of Pavlov before? Pavlov and his dog? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Pavlov was... Uh, 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 basically observed, okay, the following. Now, obviously, when he would give his dogs food, they would salivate, you know, because when you have good food, you start to, you get ready to eat it, so your, your glands, you know, start to produce saliva so you can eat it. He noticed that even when he would ring the bell to call his dog, right, it would already start salivating because it knew it was anticipating, right, it was anticipating the eating. So even, it's like if you know you're about to eat, Sometimes you can start to salivate, even if you haven't seen the food and it's not there yet, but you know that the table is getting set and you're getting ready to eat, okay? So we talked about something called, um, the, something called the, uh, a stimuli. He talked about a stimulus and a response, okay? The stimulus in this case would be seeing or smelling the food, let's say, okay? And the response is the salivating or whatever, right? Or like some people... Let's say when they, uh, as soon as they drink coffee in the morning, they feel like they have to go to the bathroom, yeah. right? So like sometimes you'll just hear the coffee brewing and you already feel like you have to go to the bathroom because you heard the coffee, you thought about it, right? It, that's, so he discovered there's something called an, a, a stimulus, which is, they would call it the UCS sometimes, unconditioned stimulus. That means it's a natural stimulus. Nobody has to tell your body 
when it's eating to make saliva. It just does that. Nobody has to tell your body when, when it's exposed to a coffee that it needs to go to the bathroom. It's, it stimulates you to do that, right? That's an unconditioned stimulus and it leads to a response, okay? What Pavlov realized was that you could have a CS, a conditioned stimulus, which means that you pair a stimulus, like for example, he had a bell that would call his dogs that meant it was time to eat, okay? So when they would hear ding, 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 all of a sudden, they would come, they would start salivating right away without even seeing the food or smelling the food or anything, okay? So you would, when these two come together again and again and again, conditioned stimulus comes together with unconditioned stimulus, so then just hearing or seeing the conditioned stimulus gets you to the unconditioned, gets you to the response that you were having because of the unconditioned stimulus, meaning the naturally you automatically salivated for having the food. Now just the idea that you're gonna have the food, right? The fact that you see a stimulus that's associated with having the food, it also brings you to the response. It's a, a, a rabbi told me one time that he would get up, there was a guy in his shul, he would give a drasha. Whenever he got up to give the drasha, this guy fell asleep. The second the drasha, he would get up, the guy fell asleep, okay? Now, and then when would the guy wake up? When it was time for Musaf. Because the rabbi would speak like before the Musaf. So he would get up, the guy, boom. He saw the rabbi go up, boom, he's out. Okay? He would give the speech. And then as soon as the Musaf, what happened? One time they decided to change the order. They decided to do Musaf before the speech. So the rabbi went up to tell everybody, it's time that we're going to do Musaf first this week. We're not going to do the speech first. We're going to do Musaf first. The guy fell asleep because he saw the rabbi go up. That is his trigger. It's time to go to sleep. Went to sleep. He missed the Musaf. And he was very mad at the rabbi. He said, Rabbi, why didn't you wake me up? I fell asleep for the Musaf. He didn't care about the speech every week he fell asleep, right? The point is, you can have that all the time. You can have something that uh, triggers already a certain biological response or emotional response. You see certain things. I think people see decorations for the holiday. They feel a certain thing that the holiday's coming, right? Different kinds of stimuli that we pair with a uh, something that we naturally respond to, right? A direct response. We pair it with that and it gives us the response automatically, okay? Now, this is the... Uh, this is what Pavlov created. In other words, Pavlov was working with biological responses. Responses that are built in, okay? Responses of salivating, uh, blinking, uh, uh, going to the bathroom, whatever. Biological responses, okay? Along came, now, but this doesn't really do much for us in terms of psychology because uh, what are we gonna do? Train everybody to be Pavlov's dog? As they say, no, not really, right? So what does give us something in psychology? Another guy, this guy, his name was Skinner. His name was B.F. Skinner. What does B.F. stand for? I can't remember. I don't know if I ever knew. Everyone just calls him B.F. Okay, B.F. Skinner. Not sure what it stands for, but his name is, okay, Skinnerian psychology. He built on this. He was the big behaviorist. He's famous at, for, in behavioral psychology. Pavlov was more, not really a psychologist so much as somebody who uh, noticed that you could pair different, you could learn responses, basically. You could pair an unconditioned, a conditioned response with an unconditioned response. Take a natural response you already have, link it to something else, and automatically that thing you linked it to will give you the same response as the, uh, you know, the, uh, 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 the, the, the unconditioned, right? The natural thing, right? B.F. Skinner had a different thing called operant, operant conditioning. What that means is I can control your behavior in a different way, okay? 
I can control your behavior, and this is very useful in psychology because it can, because pairing, you can, you know, what they do, one of the things that they tried to do, I don't think it actually works. I'm not sure. They try to do, they used to try to do, was they would take a person, let's say, who, was a, who had like certain, it was like a pedophile or something, you know, lo aleno, right? And they would show them, let's say, a picture of kids and then give them an electric shock. So they would associate seeing the kid with something bad, right? With the pain instead of a pleasure, right? They tried to use a Pavlov idea, right? Or to try to associate seeing a, let's say they wanted to change somebody. It doesn't really work. They want to change them from being gay to straight or something like that. They show them a woman, give them a positive uh, thing. And so they will like girls, you know? They will associate it with them. It doesn't work. But the, the point is that they try... It, it can work that basically if you pair... Right, if you pair a stimulus that has a natural response of pain or pleasure or biological response of salivating or blinking or whatever, uh, whatever it might be, you pair that with another response and they always come together and then you just have the yeah, conditioned like response. It can work. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. If a person gets food poisoning, they can't like have that food again, right? Because it associates, right, that's an example of it, right? The, the bad experience that you had, and it's so powerful actually that even one time it can really affect you, right? Yeah, but a person can have like certain smells, certain sights that they associate with certain things and they start having, that it triggers them, positive or negative, and this was Pavlov's idea. Okay, you can, the only thing you can do with that is you can try to pair different stimuli that are positive with things that you, wanna, that you want them to have a positive response to. So that will trigger a positive, uh, positive response or certain things with a negative response. But it, it's limited in what it can do. Operant conditioning is more flexible in what it can do. Operant conditioning means I can use reward and punishment, basically, to get you to uh, do what I want or to teach you to do different behaviors. Meaning, <clears throat> we have something called reinforcement. And we have punishment. Now, what does reinforcement mean? Exactly. Very good. You already learned this, obviously, because yeah. most people don't know this, right? Most people think that negative reinforcement means a punishment, but it's not, right? Reinforcement increases the likelihood that you will do something. Punishment decreases the likelihood that you're going to do something. There's two kinds of reinforcement, and there's also two kinds of punishment. <clears throat> right. The goal is what makes them different. Reinforcement means I want you to do this more, this behavior. So what am I going to do? When you do it, I'm going to give you a, a dollar. Every time you do it, you get a dollar. After a while, you'll do it a lot. How do you teach a dog tricks? You give them a, a doggy treat. They sit, you give them a treat. They listen, you give it to them. You do it. When they don't listen, they don't get it because otherwise it won't work, right? That's called positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement means that you give them something positive, to increase the likelihood that they're going to do it again. Negative reinforcement doesn't mean punishment because punishment is to prevent you from something. It means I take something away that you didn't like, meaning it's absence of something. So if I take something away that was bothering you, for example, a negative reinforcement would be I took medicine and my headache went away. Okay? Every time, every time, right. So you're just going to make me do it again. I'm going to take it again. Okay, 
I, it, it gave me a positive, it gave me a negative reinforcement. It reinforced my wanting to use the medicine because it took away the pain. Okay, that's an example of negative reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is when I give you something. You give a reward. There's a prize. Okay, there's a prize for coming to the shiur. The kids want to come. Right? Punishment is to decrease. You did something bad, I want to decrease it. There's positive and negative punishment. Positive punishment means that I smack you around. Okay, we don't do that anymore, of course, right? Negative means I take something away. Right? I take something away from the child. For, uh, I ground them, I take away their electronics, whatever it is, that's a negative kind of punishment. A positive kind of punishment would be, I force them to clean the floors. I don't know. Some, something that is an action that they have to do. Or that they get something that they don't want. I force them to eat Brussels sprouts. I don't know. Whatever it is that they wouldn't want, that's a punishment. The point is that punishment is to decrease the likelihood that they're going to do it again. Reinforcement is to increase. Now, a lot of research on reinforcement and punishment is done with animals. Now, one of the most interesting things is that animals and people are a lot alike when it comes to reinforcement. You give an animal, let's say you want the little uh, mouse or hamster or whatever to hit a bar in the cage, okay? If every time it hits a bar, it gets a little treat, it'll hit the bar and it'll get the treat. It'll hit the bar and it'll get the treat. After a while, it gets bored. It doesn't want to eat, you know, wants to stop. What's the most likely, this is the funniest thing, what is the most likely uh, way of encouraging them to, uh, to do an, a behavior again and again and again? When there's an unpredictable schedule of reinforcement, meaning if they push the bar 100 times, maybe it's going to come. Maybe it'll be after five times. Maybe it'll be after 10 times. Maybe it'll be after 100 times. It comes at random different times, but eventually it will come. If they keep hitting the bar, eventually it's going to come. They just don't know what the schedule is. That encourages them to hit that thing like crazy. What is that similar to in human life? That's a slot machine. It's gambling, right? I'm going to do it again. One more time. This time I'm going to get it. This time I'm going to get the prize. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Right? If you did it forever, eventually you'll get it, right? So the idea is that it's an unpredictable, random, it's not every time. Because it's not every time and the interval is variable, right? You don't really know when it's going to be. So that encourages you to keep trying, 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 trying. Okay? That works really, really well to get those hamsters to go crazy, hitting that bar like crazy to get whatever the reward is that's coming out of that little thing every time they hit it. If it comes every time, they get bored. If it never comes, obviously they don't do it. Right? If you, if they, uh, uh, you know, if it's on an, uh, a, a variable, uh, a random uh, variable schedule, so then they keep hitting, 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 hitting because every 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, they don't know, eventually they're going to get something, right? Just like humans with uh, that. The other thing that's interesting about punishment and reinforcement is that it internalizes a behavior, meaning that even when that punishment might not long, no, no longer be there, uh, uh, they have the invisible fence or whatever, something that will get a dog, right, will give up after a couple of times it tries to go and it gets like a little shock or whatever, it won't go again. Even though you could turn it off, it's not going to go again. It learns that that's not a good place to go, right? It learns that you can't, right? So reinforcement and punishment can internalize certain responses. And this is used very extensively with children, obviously, okay, to reinforce positive behaviors by rewarding them. The reward can come in the form of encouragement, 
the punishment can come in the form of yelling at them. It doesn't always have to be a physical thing, but the point is to increase the frequency of a behavior or decrease the frequency of a behavior that you don't want, okay? You use reinforcement or you use punishment. You use positive or negative reinforcement, which both refer to increasing the frequency of the person's behavior, or, and that can happen on all kinds of different schedules. Punishment is to decrease. It's a consequence that decreases the likelihood of the behavior. It can be either something that is taken away or something that's given to the person in both cases. Right now, and again, uh, if the punishment is, uh, is on a schedule where it's very unpredictable and random, it's also more scary in a way, right? But, uh, but, the, but it, more of the research of that is, about, is in the reinforcement. So what did Skinner do? Skinner had this idea that like we can make the world perfect, that basically pe- kids are, are born on a blank, uh, sort of a blank slate idea, and basically by a, uh, a process of shaping them and training them, he even wrote a book on teaching. I think it was called like The Technology of Teaching or something like that. He wrote like, he believed that like human behavior is like technology. You train kids by reinforcing good, punishing bad, and all that to get them to learn the right behaviors. And you dissuade them from doing bad behaviors and that's how you raise them and that's how you teach. And everything should be like that. It's very scientific, right? You can study. You can study it. You can literally figure out what is the ratio of number of behaviors to number of reinforcements and what schedule of them doing that thing that they get a prize will be the maximum that they'll do it even more. Right? What will minimize a behavior the most effectively? Right? You can study this stuff and figure it out. Now, of course, this is not at all going into the depth of a personality. It's not at all going into what's happening in the deeper recesses of the personality. Is there even an unconscious? Is there even a, or are there even conflicts like that? Usually when we think of Skinner, B.F. Skinner, we think of him as the anti-Freud. He's like the opposite of psychodynamic or psychoanalytic in the sense that he is only looking at behavior and he's only looking at it in a mechanical kind of way. Although he also believed that you could explain how thoughts are, you know, people's ways of thinking, people's ways of feeling, people's ways of uh, of learning language, she believed is basically like this because the person is like, I is going to the store. And you're like, no, no, I am going to the store. Uh, you know, you, they get corrected and they learn that, you know, they, uh, they, they succeed more and they're praised more for correct language. They're, you know, they get negative response from that. That's how they learn the correct language. According to him, they, they, there's a lot of discussion about language. We might do another class on that because that's super interesting and all the different opinions of how we develop language. But what is the point here? The point is that operant conditioning or the idea of B.F. Skinner, that we look at a person's behavior and thoughts in a very technical way, in a very mechanistic way. We can shape what a person does, how they react, uh, using this kind of a, a system of conditioning. That's the idea that he introduced. Now, where do we see, we, we certainly have a concept like this in Judaism, right? Because we have, an, in all of this, right? BF, if you ask B.F. Skinner, what is the goal? What's the goal? You want to teach a child to do their homework, okay? You want to teach a child to clean up after themselves. So every time they do it, they get a prize or every 10th time or every fifth time or whatever, whatever the right ske- reinforcement schedule is that is very effective, you do that. What is the actual goal from the teacher's perspective? Yeah, you want them to learn that behavior, right? What's their perspective? What's the goal? They're, you're punishing them. Or, or rewarding, right? 
from their perspective, you, you are, you're getting something they don't really have an interest in, which is doing their homework, right? By giving them something they are interested in, which is the intrinsic reward. There's all kinds of, right? There's all kinds of different reward, types of rewards. There's intrinsically rewarding activities. There's extrinsic rewards. There's social kinds of rewards. There's physical kinds of rewards like candies and, and things like that. There's different kinds of rewards and different kinds of, um, uh, of punishments that can be used. We're not even getting into that. There's all kinds of different rewards that can be used. Um, and of course, there's, uh, there are rewards that are extrinsic to the behavior, which is mostly what B.F. Skinner is talking about, as opposed to intrinsic, which is where the activity itself is rewarding and enjoyable and all that. But we're not even getting to that. He's ta- he was specifically focusing on where the behavior is something that the child wouldn't naturally do. So you're teaching them and encouraging them by the reinforcement schedule. Now... What really the desired thing is I want them to learn a certain behavior or avoid certain behaviors. They do, they're not inclined to do that. So I'm using something that they automatically like, like candy or stickers or presents or uh, whatever, encouraging words, whatever it is, to get them to do the thing that I want them to do. Okay? Eventually, when you grow up, you don't necessarily need those reinforcements to be present for you to continue doing those things. Okay, maybe you, to some extent you do sometimes, but not as much, right? Not as much. So like to get a, uh, uh, let's say a child to read a book might be harder when they're very little and eventually you might like reading. So you might just want to read a book for your own entertainment and nobody has to convince you. So, so on. But where do you see this in the Torah? We definitely see this in the Torah because we have sechar onish. We have an idea of reward and punishment in the Torah also. Now, and, and the Rambam, he has a beautiful, beautiful... Uh, explanation of reward and punishment where he talks about teaching a child Torah when they're young. He says, when you teach a child Torah when they're young, first you say, oh, read this pasuk, you'll get a candy. Right? right? As they get a little bit older, you have to say a few more pasukim, otherwise it's, you can run out of candy, right? Yeah. Or, you know... And then it turns into going to shul. Right, and then, and then slowly, they don't like candy anymore. Candy's for babies. What about a toy? You know, they want a toy. Okay, so then a toy... Then after that, after a while, it's like, I don't want to, I want cool clothes. You know, I want this, whatever. They, what, now it's electronics. I want, a, I want electronics. That's the toy of today, right? And eventually it's kavod. Oh, I want to learn to walk. So people will say, wow, that person is so smart. That person is so accomplished. That person is so this. So at, as the, the level of the person, as you mature, you look back and you're like, oh my God, when I was five years old, getting stickers was like amazing. Now, stickers really would not get you to do much. Okay? Back then, you wouldn't believe what stickers could convince you to do back then. Right? <clears throat> so that's the, that's the way that we mature in the kinds of reinforcements that work for us. So the Rambam talks about that. He says, but eventually, what's the goal, the Rambam says? Eventually, the goal is that a person learns Torah because they love it. They don't need someone to say, oh, I'm going to hold a carrot in front of you, so to speak, to get you to do it. Right, so there is this idea in the Rambam of operant conditioning. Basically, when we teach a child, we get the child to do the good behavior or dissuade them from doing the bad behavior based upon some extrinsic reward or consequence. Okay, <clears throat> eventually it becomes intrinsic that they value the activity for its own sake. And there's so many things like that in your own life, I'm sure. That, you know, let's say, saying please and thank you, your parents probably said, hey, you have to say thank you. You have to say whatever when you were younger. And if you said something inappropriate, now, hopefully, you realize 
being polite is very valuable. When you're polite, other people are polite to you. It gets you further. It's, you know, it's more beneficial. It's a, whatever, right? You eventually see the value of it without having someone force you to do it all the time, okay? But, the, so the Torah has this idea of operating. I understand why I was being forced to. Now you do, yeah. That's what happens, especially the older you get, the more you realize the stuff your parents did, like, made sense, even though it was really annoying at the time. Yeah, I knew a guy, I always like this, this actually fits perfectly with this, I knew a chazan. He was a good chazan, he was very young. He was a good chazan, and a good re- Torah reader, actually. And he was a Moroccan kid. And he, uh, he's not, I mean, he's, he was a kid then, now I guess he's probably like 40, I don't know. I don't know how old he is now, but he was young, he was like in 20, early 20s back then. And he told me a story. His father was a rabbi, here in Israel, he was Israeli. And his father, every Shabbat afternoon after lunch, he always wanted to go play with his friends, you know, play ball with his friends, I don't know, soccer, whatever. He tried to sneak out after Shabbat lunch. His dad would see him and he would get his belt. Now, when I was a kid, you, you guys grew up, you guys grew up in a, a generation that has less, less of this. Hope, maybe, I hope none, but I know it's still there, but less hopefully, what? Yeah. When we were kids, your dad's belt was a number one, like, scary object. Like, if your dad started to take his belt off, that meant that it was going to be like a whip. You know, it's going to come after you with the belt. That was like a very common thing when I was a kid. Totally, all right? Now, yeah, and if you go back to the Middle East, look, our, you know, our ancestors, whether you're... Uh, no matter what, whether you're Syrian or you're Persian or, who, or wherever you're from, if they, your parents are from the old country, the kid, parents, the, the mm-hmm. parents smack the kids and the teachers smack the kids too, yeah. you know? So like my dad, when I was a kid, he didn't even have to say anything. He would just start loosening his belt and all of a sudden that meant, oh, sorry, dad, we have to behave now, right? So this guy, this chazan told me, every Shabbat he tried to go play with his friends and his dad would get his belt and he would sit down and he made him learn the parasha every Shabbat. Every Shabbat the parasha, right? Every Shabbat to learn the parasha. I, and he said, he was a really good Torah reader, right? This, this guy, he was a very good reader. So he hardly ever made a mistake. Maybe hardly ever. I don't remember if he ever did. He was a very good reader. He said, he said if I could have my father's belt today, I would hang it on my wall and kiss it when I come in the room. Like a mezuzah. Why? Because my father knew what was important. I just wanted to go play with my friends, you know. My father knew, no, this is like, we have to take advantage of this time. You've got to learn. Because I did that learning, like, I'm so good at it now. I never, you wouldn't be able to do that later in your life. It's much harder. He ended up becoming so good at it because he started so early and his father insisted on it and forced him, right? So that happens with a lot of things. We're forced to do things from extrinsic reinforcements, or in that case, punishment or threat, threat of punishment, to prevent the, uh, uh, you know, the going out with the friends. Um, but it, it ended up being intrinsically rewarding to the chazan because he had that benefit of knowing the, uh, knowing the tawas well. So in, in that, this is what the Rambam says, but it's not only that. The Rambam says that the whole idea of sachar ve'onish in the Torah, when the Torah says, for example, if you do the mitzvot, Hashem is going to give you wealth, Hashem is going to give you health, Hashem is going to give you children, Hashem is going to give you security in your borders, Hashem is going to give you all these barachot, all of this, the rain, the crops, the food, everything, right? And if you don't, 
Hashem is going to take all of it away and it's going to be a drought and you're going to be having wars and it's going to be dead. He says, all of this, the Rambam says, none of this is for its own sake. Don't think that Hashem is saying, do the mitzvot and the benefit of doing the mitzvot is you get food. No. The benefit of doing the mitzvot is that you should do the mitzvot. They're good for you. They bring you higher, uh, you know, they raise you up spiritually. They educate you. They perfect you. They bring out your potential. They do all this good for you. But to get you to do it, there's sachar v'onish. In other words, sachar v'onish is from, from the perspective of the person who doesn't have a motivation to keep the Torah, the sachar v'onish is the motivation. They say, oh, if I do the mitzvot, I'll get all of these material blessings. If I don't do the mitzvot, I'm going to get the punishment. So I guess I'll go with the blessings. That's, but the purpose is for a person to change their attitude and say, you know what? Really the Torah and mitzvot is what's good. And Baruch Hashem that I have food and I have peace and I have a family and I have all this. So I can learn more Torah and I can do more mitzvot. Not do the mitzvot so I can have the material things. Have the material things so I can learn more Torah. So operant conditioning is kind of the same concept. In the beginning, we get you to do this by giving you an extrinsic kind of a reward. But eventually, the idea is that you will internalize and appreciate why you're doing what you're doing and what the value is for its own sake. Okay? There's a beautiful story I might have told you in another class. You might have heard from me before. One of my favorite stories from the Zohar, actually, okay, that speaks about Rabbi Abba who is one of the very common uh, rabbis in the Zohar, who's talked about the Zohar, that he said, and that he said that he needed more students for the yeshiva. So he went out and he said, it says in Mishlei, that if a person learns Torah, they have a long life, and in the left hand of Torah is it's wealth and honor, meaning you're going to become rich. If you learn the Torah. So there was this guy walking by. His name was Yossi. He didn't know anything about Torah. He heard that. He said, oh, there's a way to get rich. Learning Torah. Okay, he's Jewish. I mean, he's going to go for it. Right? He's like, I'll do it. I'll try it. So he joins the yeshiva. He starts learning, learning, learning. Every week he goes to the rabbi. Rabbi, I came to the yeshiva. You told me, I'm going to make a lot of money. Where's my money? The rabbi said, don't worry. Eventually, eventually. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Right, this is the perfect operant conditioning with a variable reinforcement here because he doesn't know when he's going to get the payment. He, so he keeps trying, trying. He's thinking any day, right? He's learning, he's learning. He becomes a Tamil Chacham. He's really succeeding in the yeshiva. One day, a big donor comes to Rabbi Abba. He says, Rabbi Abba, I want to support the Lomdei Torah. I want to support everyone here who's learning Torah. I want to give I have a very expensive goblet worth, I don't know, a million bucks. I don't know how much it was. A lot of money. I want to give it to you. Use it however you see fit. So Rabbi Abba gets this goblet. He comes to this Yossi and he says, Guess what? I have news for you. Finally, the Berachah came. I got this wonderful goblet worth so much money. It's just for you because you've been learning so much. Wow, amazing. Perfect reinforcement. Variable schedule because he doesn't know when the next one is going to come. But he starts learning even more. He's like, yes, it worked. It's like a person who wins in the slot machine, and then they just waste all the money that they won because they just keep playing and playing and playing, think they're going to win again, right? That's how they get you, right? So he's working and working, learning, 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 learning. One day, Rabbi Abba comes into the yeshiva and he sees this poor guy crying. 
He's crying. He says, what happened? Why are you crying? You, you needed more money. You, you're, you're crying because you didn't get enough money. He's like, no, the opposite. It's like, I realized I was so foolish. I came here to learn Torah because I wanted money. I thought that the goal was money, learning Torah to get the money. He's like, now I realize the Torah is more valuable than the money. The Torah is much more important. That's what the blessing was. Blessing was the Torah, not the money. I feel like a fool that I cared more about the money. And so he gave the money away to Tzedakah. He took the money that he got from the goblet and gave it to Tzedakah. And that's why he became called. And this is the story of the Zohar says, he, there was a rabbi named Ben Pazi. Pazi Paz is gold. Right? Paz means like fine gold. So Ben Pazi, he was the son of gold, meaning it was gold that brought him to learn the Torah, but he, he went past it. He was Ben Pazi. So he was, uh, so this rabbi, Ben Pazi, in the Gemara, that's mentioned in the Gemara, his backstory in the Zohar is that he came to learn Torah based upon wanting the reward, the external reward, but he came to understand the intrinsic value of the Torah from all that effort. Okay, and this is a perfect, this example, what the Torah teaches us about Sechal Ve'onish, and all the examples of Sechal Ve'onish in the Torah, the goal is always that we do what is good, we use um, operant conditioning, basically, a person is promised rewards, or the children are rewarded by the parents, or by the rabbi, or there's a raffle for prizes, or there's this, or that's that, that gets them to come, and eventually they say, wow, Thank God there was the raffle for prizes at the, at the shul. On Saturday nights, I came to the learning because I was going to get a prize. I was going to get this, uh, the pizza. I was going to get the event. Because, uh, because of that, I became uh, more knowledgeable and more religious and I connected to Torah more. And I, I went for the wrong reason, but it turned out to be for good things. Okay, This is operating conditioning. It is definitely something that we find in the Torah as well. That doesn't substitute... See, the difference when it comes to psychology is that when you're dealing, let's say, with an operant conditioning, you can try to shape behavior. You can try to um, address uh, uh, maladaptive, unhealthy thoughts or unhealthy behaviors by, um, uh, you know, by uh, teaching people to and encouraging them and rewarding them for behaving in a different way. Okay. Uh, this, and it, this is a way that it can, it can connect to therapy. Another thing that in the behavioral system that is a, a common way of, uh, uh, of treating, let's say, people have anxieties and fears is through what's called systematic desensitization, which is... So put it in front of their face. Yeah, which is basically you... You're scared of spiders. You're you show them, the get them closer and closer to the spider or the snake or the rabbit the or whatever they're afraid of. Slowly, they will not be afraid of it anymore. Right? It des- they, we have this term, even we use it all the time. I'm desensitized to something. You get desensitized to it. The fear that you had goes away. I remember, this is disgusting, but I remember one example uh, of, uh, that they brought from uh, systematic desensitization, behavioral psychology, was a person who had a, a phobia of bodily fluids, basically, like any bathroom stuff. He really had a major anxiety and didn't like it. And from the, from the uh, systematic desensitization, eventually they went so far as the guy drank his own like <gasps> urine or something like that. And it was like, look, I'm not afraid of it anymore. It's like pretty disgusting. But anyway, the point is that all of these things, what do they have in common? Behaviorism doesn't look at why. Why do you have that anxiety? Right? What, why do you have that behavior? 
Why do you have those thoughts? Why do you have that emotion? We're not interested. We just want to fix it. Right? So, yeah. They, because they say that going into that is endless. We don't really know. It's very speculative. It's a theory. You think it's because of this. You interpret it. You could go to a therapist, a psychodynamic therapist, for 10 years talking about your problems. Let's say, let's say I'm afraid of like, the ocean, like the big, mm-hmm. huge ocean or whatever. That doesn't mean that something in my life happens tra- traumatic. That I it could be. Like, Some, no, that doesn't. But Freud would say there's something inside you. Either the ocean symbolizes something to you or some experience that evokes some kind of emotion inside of you that's being, that you're repressing and you don't really know what it is and it's hidden and buried inside you. And the way to treat it is to find out what that is and to release it. And then you'll be able to relate to the ocean normally. So they will say, we're not interested in why you came to be afraid of the ocean, but we know that if we take you and you put your feet in a little bit and then you do a little bit more, a little more, eventually we can break down that fear and you'll be... Uh, you'll, you'll be able to be okay. This is how behaviorism differs. So behaviorism in terms of conditioning people to behave in certain ways and also curing, let's say, certain maladaptive behaviors by exposure, desensitization and stuff. It works. It works. The question is, does it address what the cause is? No, it doesn't address what the cause is. It's not interested in what the cause is. They're, whatever the cause is, we don't care. Our job is to fix the problem. We can fix your phobia really quickly and effectively by using systematic desensitization. And that's what they do. Okay, so Bezrat Hashem will continue on this next time. Thank you.